You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Corbin really isn't that good. I haven't seen him play, but I just know him. So he's taken off, so he didn't get to hear that part. Uh, Welcome. Uh, Like you said, we are continuing our sermon series today that we started a few weeks ago called Forever Changed. And what we've been doing, if you have been missing service the last couple weeks because you've been out and about, is we are looking at different stories in the text of people that have interacted with Jesus and then talked about how their life changed because of that um, and how they were able to change other people's lives because of that. that. A few weeks ago, we we started with Mary of Magdala, and then we did Nicodemus. And last week... We had Cornelius up here with Thad, and we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well. So if you missed all those, you can jump online and listen to them at any time, and I encourage you to do that. Today we get to talk about one of my favorite people in the New Testament, and he is one of my favorite because I feel like I relate to him so much, and that guy's name is Peter. Um, We're going to jump right in here because we got a long ways to go, and I want to get you to the barbecue to watch Corbin lose before the end of the day. Acts chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both women and men, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This is the guy that we're talking about today, who gets to a point in his life where people are laying their sick and lame out in the street in the hopes that just his shadow will fall over them. How does he get here? And I think in order for us to do that, we're going to go way back to try to understand how Peter got to this point. And we're going to go even further back than when Peter first meets Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to do a little history lesson. Some of you guys have probably heard this stuff. Some of you may have not. It might be a reminder for you guys. But what I want to do is I want to talk about why uh, the text became such an important thing to the people of Israel. Back centuries before Jesus even came on the scene, the Babylonians had come in and just decimated the rest of Israel that was left in Jerusalem and carried them all away to Babylon and held them in captivity. And while they were there, the Israelites tried to figure out, why are we here? What did we do wrong? How did we lose favor with God to the point where he took away the land that he had given us and now we're here? And so there was a group that started to Uh, come up with this idea that, you know, the reason is probably that we failed to remember who we were. We failed to remember who our God is. And we failed to remember what his commands and his decrees were. And so they decided that they were going to commit themselves to the study of God's word. And they developed this thing they called the synagogue. And even from the construction of this building, you can see that it is all about the text. So when Persia comes in, takes over Babylon, releases the Israelites to go back to Israel, 
There's a group that decide not to go back to Jerusalem, but to stay in the region of the Galilee. And that is the group that really starts to push this study of God's word. And they wanted it to start early. Their education system in the synagogue started at the ages of five. So just like kindergarten for us, they're sending their boys and their girls to the synagogue at the age of five, and they start to learn. And they're not just learning about, you know, math and science and stuff. No, they are learning about God's word. They're reading it. They're writing it. They're memorizing it. And in particular, they're studying God's first five books of the Bible, which they call the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the time these guys, these kids, these boys and girls get done with this section of schooling about the age of 10, many of them have the entire five books memorized. Think about that. That's crazy. When they hit that age, then they start to learn their family trade. So there's two paths at the age of 10. Either you're going to learn your family trade and that's all you do, or if you were in the top of the class that during this uh, class, what they called Bet Sefer, when you hit 10, if you were at the top of the class, you moved into the next level of education called Bet Midrash. And this was from the ages of 10 to 15. And what they would do is they would continue to study the word. They would learn the rest of the Old Testament, all the prophets, all the, the chronicles and the kings and the Psalms and Proverbs, and they would learn it all and memorize it. And they would learn the different interpretations that were out there of these, these scriptures. And by the time they reached the end of this, the whole time still learning their family trade, they again had two paths that they could take. Most of them went back home and became fishermen or tent makers or whatever else. Other kind of trades were going on, masons. But the cream of the crop, the best of the best, 1% of the class would move on. And the next role for them was to become a disciple of a rabbi. And this was an intense process. It wasn't just for anybody. You know, I, I witnessed an intense process similar to this just in the last year. And if you guys will humor me for a minute, I want to share that story with you, if you'll allow me. Um, actually, I don't know why I asked permission, because I'm just going to do it anyways. <laughs> Uh, this last year, we watched, my family watched my son go through a process like this. Two weeks ago, we dropped him off in West Point, New York, at the United States Military Academy. Um, and he went through this rigorous application process and decision in his life to even take this step. If you guys don't know, the branches of the military have their own colleges. They're called academies. Each branch has its own, but the only one that really matters is the one in West Point. And that's the Army uh, Academy. <clears throat> All others pale in comparison. Anyways, so he had to, when he was young, decide, I want to be in the military. What does that look like? I want to be an officer. Which branch? And so he had to go through all these, these processes and learn what each branch was about, and then find out about these schools and which one was best for him. And then he applied. And the first round of application included him gathering everything that he could about himself. 
Here's how I did in school. Here's how I did in sports. Here's how I did in the community. Here are letters of recommendation from all my teachers and coaches and youth leaders and people who know me. And he sent it all off to the senators and congressmen for the state of Idaho. And they got that information and they looked at it and decided whether or not they thought he was good enough to move on to the next round. And if they thought he measured up and could succeed, they sent his name off, they get, wrote up a nomination, and his stuff moved on to the next level. And if the academies look at that and say, we think that you have what it takes to be an officer in the U.S. Army. We, have, we think that you have the commitment to finish school and then do five years of active service afterwards. We believe that you can do that. And every young man and woman that goes through this process has to withstand that scrutiny. It's similar to the scrutiny that one of these young men would have when he would present himself to a rabbi. It would be a rabbi in the area that was famous, and he would probably have been studying this rabbi's teachings so that when he was done with Bet Midrash, he would go to that rabbi and say, I want to follow you. And so the rabbi would say, okay, tell me what you know. So he'd start to quiz him. What do you know about the text? How well do you know it? What do you know? How well do you know the interpretations of the text? How well do you know my interpretations of the text? And if he felt like he was comfortable with his knowledge, then he would have to make a determination on whether or not he thought this young man standing before him could walk the walk like he was. Could this kid who wants to follow me make it through the next 10 or so years doing life the way I do it? If he thought that that person measured up, he would say, come, follow me. I think you can do it. I think you can be like me. So now, with that all in the forefront of our mind, let's get back to Peter's story. We're in Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. This, is, uh, this becomes typical of Jesus in doing things his own way. It was very rare for a rabbi to actually go out and seek his own disciples. The common practice is what we just talked about, where they would come to them and present their case that they would be worthy. But here's Jesus doing his own thing. Not only is he going against the grain and seeking out his own disciples, he chooses this guy named Simon. A guy who we know is a ways down in his life because he's a fisherman, which means he didn't make it in school, for one. Who knows how far he made it? Maybe he got through Bet Sefer and he was like 10 years old. He's, I love fishing. More than anything, there's no way I want to go back to school. I'm just going to fish for the rest of my life. Or maybe he made it through the first two levels and he presented himself to a rabbi somewhere and said, I want to follow you. I want to be like you. And that rabbi weighed him, measured him, and found him wanting. 
and said, you don't have what it takes. Who really, we don't really know. All we know is that here's this 20-something-year-old married man fishing in the Sea of Galilee, probably thinking that his chances of doing something like that were gone. But that's not who Jesus sees. When Jesus is on that shore and he sees Simon, he looks at him and actually sees Peter, the rock. He sees a guy who someday can walk on the water just like he does. He sees a guy who someday will raise someone from the dead just like he will. He sees a guy who someday people will lay their sick and lame in the street just in the hopes that his shadow will fall upon him. That is who Jesus sees. So it's no wonder that Peter drops everything that he was doing. This could be the first time anybody has ever told Peter that they believe in him, that they think that he could do what they do, other than his dad who taught him how to fish. So Peter starts this journey of learning how to be like Jesus. He begins to learn what Jesus knows, and then he begins to learn what that looks like to live it out as well. And he has highs and lows in his life as he's doing this in the next three years. I mean, he has times like when he walks on the water, sitting in the boat, looking out and seeing his rabbi out there on the water in the middle of a storm. And after confirming that it is his rabbi, of course he's going to jump out of the boat. He thinks he can be like his rabbi. And he does. And he succeeds until he doubts himself. And then he sinks. Or like in a, f- a few other chapters down the road when Jesus is asking his disciples, hey, who do people think that I am? And they answer him and he says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him and builds him up and says, that's, that's the correct, that's the right answer. The Father has revealed that to you, good job. And then turn around the corner and then Jesus is talking about having to suffer and die and Peter takes him to the side and he's like, you can't say that kind of stuff. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. You cannot hinder me in this mission. But this is kind of what we see in Peter's life throughout those three years that he does well and he falls, does well does and falls. But it's building his confidence in who he is and building his, uh, uh, his confidence in who Jesus thinks that he is, who Jesus believes that he is. And so we know, I think, that that confidence just keeps building and building and it comes to the point when they're at the Last Supper, that night right before Jesus is betrayed the night before Peter's lowest moment in his life when Jesus is sitting around the table with his his friends and his disciples and says, you're all going to leave me. But Peter, it's like, that's not me. He says, you know, all these other guys, yeah, they'll probably leave you, Lord, but not me. I will be there. I will never abandon you. Don't you remember? I was the one that jumped out of the boat. 
And Jesus says, actually, not only are you going to abandon me, you're going to deny that you even know me. And Peter adamantly is like, no, there's no way that would ever happen. I would never deny you. I would go to prison with you. I would even die with you. Well, he gets his chance to back his words up in only a few short hours after that. Jesus gets arrested, brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they're inside the house doing the trial, and we see that Peter kind of sneaks his way into the courtyard. And if you've ever seen a picture, I had a picture, and I forgot to throw it in the notes that Thad took. But you can see in this house the courtyard and then the room that they were most likely in is not that far away. Peter would have been able, been able to stand there and see and hear how things were going in there. And so that's where we pick up his story in Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He blew it again. He was trying to do what Jesus had said he could do. He was trying to follow him. And he had the opportunity, and he blew it. But this time, his consequences were a little more dire. He didn't have Jesus there to be able to reach down and pick him up from drowning. You have to understand that during this time period, for a disciple to deny that he even knows his rabbi is the most heinous thing that he could ever do. It is the deepest betrayal that a rabbi could ever experience for his disciple to deny that he knows him. There would be deep shame there for that rabbi and also for the disciple. In fact, that disciple would be shunned from that group of people. He would not be accepted back by that rabbi. He would not be accepted back by anybody else that was following him. He would be on his own. I don't think that Peter went into that courtyard intending to deny Jesus. I think he still had the confidence that he could do exactly what Jesus was doing. But as he sat there listening to what was happening and seeing how that trial was going, and he got the opportunity to step up and be like Jesus, he didn't. 
a quote was shared with me this week by a guy named Skip Moen. And he's talking about this particular instance in Peter's life. And I think it's a phenomenal description of what potentially Peter was going through. Denial is never something we intend. Denial is a result of panic. It comes when we begin to think we are alone in this world. It jumps up from inside when we suddenly need to protect ourselves. And it rushes out so quickly that unless our hearts and minds are fixed on the truth of life and God, it will overwhelm us in that split second when we say, I don't know him. If you know the crushing emotion of shame, you know that forgiveness is not enough. God must restore your heart along with your mind. You need to be renewed. Thank God that is just what he does. In a moment, shame can overwhelm, but in a moment, it can be conquered. I don't know if Peter thought that he was ever going to get restored. Jesus was gone. Jesus was gone and all he had was his shame. What I find interesting about this particular part in, uh, point in Peter's life is that the next time we see him is he's racing towards the tomb with John. And then after they race from the tomb, they go back to the upper room where all the other disciples are. How is Peter still with all these guys? Why is he still in the group of these guys after what had happened? I mean, many of us have lost loved ones or friends. And what do you do after that? You sit around with your friends and your family. You start talking about that person. Remember when so-and-so did this? Remember when so-and-so said this? I kind of imagine that's what's going on in the upper room after Jesus died. All the disciples sitting there talking about Jesus. Man, remember when Jesus said that? Yeah, that was cool. Remember when he did this? Oh, man, that was amazing. And then one of them's like, hey, wait. Hey, Peter, didn't Jesus say something that night uh, before he got arrested? What was it like that you were going to deny him or something like that? How did that go? Oh, yeah. Um, did he say something? like? I don't know. I don't think so. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I don't know. That's just in my imagination how that went down. But if they knew what had actually happened that night, I don't know that they would have accepted him there. And then Jesus raises from the dead and he appears in this upper room. And my imagination keeps going and I imagine Peter just kind of like, I'm going to go back in the corner here and not make eye contact with Jesus because I'm ashamed of what I did. And this, this could be where Peter's story ended. Had we not had John's account in John chapter 21, we would have never known where Peter's story came from. Because we would have just assumed that Peter was written off. Or we would have thought, wait, how in the world did he go from 
denying Christ, all of a sudden people want to be in his shadow. That's weird. Was there, what happened? But John gives us what he calls the third time that Jesus appeared to them. And it happens again at the Sea of Galilee. And Peter happens to be again fishing. And they're having breakfast. And after breakfast, this is what happens. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I don't know if this is how he intended it, but when I read that, I didn't, uh, I didn't see it before until this morning during the first service. Like, is Jesus calling back to that moment in the upper room when they're having Passover? And Simon Peter was like, all these other people will leave you, Lord, but I won't. Hey, Peter, remember when you said that? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I know that I, you know that I love you. He said to him, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is, he said, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus confirms Peter's love for him. Do you think it was necessary for the three times to happen? Did Jesus really need to do that? <laughs> Somebody's phone is going off. I think he did. I think he did for Peter's sake. Because I wonder if Jesus had only confirmed that Peter loved him just one time. And, and I'm putting myself in Peter's shoes here. Like later on in life, when I screw up again, and I think back to this moment, I'm like, oh, Jesus only forgave me for the one time that I denied him. Not for all three. So yeah, I think he did. I think he needed to do it three times for Peter's sake so that Peter knew that he was being fully forgiven and fully restored. Do you love me? I do. Good, get back on mission. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Get back to what I called you to. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I do. Get back on mission. And in case it's not clear enough to you, Peter, let me know, let you know, 
follow me. You're still enough. You're still good enough. You're still the person that I saw when I saw you the first time on this beach. That has not changed. Get back on mission. And Peter gets to use this part of his story and his life for the rest of time. And now it becomes something that I'm sure that he hated to share. How many of us like to share the lowest points of our lives? I sure as heck don't. Because there's still some shame there. But we get four accounts of this. I'm sure he would love to know that that's how things went down. But it does become part of who he is. And he remembers where he came from. And he uses that as an encouragement to others. Let's check out this letter that he writes later on in his life to some Christians that are suffering for their beliefs. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes up upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I wonder if, as Peter is writing that, if he can see himself standing in that courtyard again. And as he's trying to encourage these people to persevere in the name of Christ, if he just wishes that he had had the strength to do the same. But since he didn't, he's going to use that moment to bring courage to these people and let them know there is hope on the other end of this. Stand firm in your faith. Stay on task. Do what God called you to do. We're going to go towards our time of communion. If you're new here with us at Real Life Church in Pullman, we do communion every week and we have what we like to call an open table. And what that means is that anybody here who is a believer in Jesus Christ is welcome to take communion with us. Just take, uh, as it comes by, grab a dry cracker and some juice and hold on to it, and then we'll uh, take it all in a moment. But as these guys pass this stuff out, I just want to kind of go over a few things um, that I drew personally from this story of Peter that I hope I hope you guys will think about today and this next week. The first thing is this. Jesus sees the potential in you and calls it out. Remember who Peter was. A 20-something-year-old married fisherman. But that's not who Jesus saw. 
Jesus looked at him and saw somebody who could be great, who would do great things in his name, who would fail greatly, but who would get back up. And he sees the same thing in each and every one of us. When he calls us to him to be his followers, it's because he sees who we can be. He believes that each and every one of us can be just like Jesus. He believes in you. He believes that you're enough. Implication number two. Your mistakes and your failures do not define who you are. Now this, this one is something that I have wrestled with for many, many years. If you guys know part of my story that I shared a couple of months ago, you know that I struggled with being defined by something somebody said in my life. Not only that, but I have made my fair share of mistakes. And I have struggled for years to not identify myself as those mistakes. To see myself as Jesus sees me. To see the potential that he sees in me. I would venture to guess that some of you sitting here today have felt the same way. That things that you have done in the past, choices that you've made, things that you've said, people that you've hurt, that those things define who you are now. But they don't. Because if they did, Jesus would have given up on you. And he hasn't. He never gives up on us. Implication number three is this. Your calling in God's kingdom does not change because you blew it. Peter denies Jesus, thinks that that denial is what defines him now. I can imagine that he probably started to remember his childhood and not feeling like he was enough and that I might as, everything everybody ever said to me is true. All I'm good for is to fish. So I'm just going to go back to that. But Jesus reminds him, no, that is, that's not what I've called you to. I have called you to take care of my sheep. I have called you to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's the same calling that each and every one of us have as well. There's a reason why our mission statement for real life is to make, uh, reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. Because we believe that Jesus has called each and every one of us to make disciples of him. We all have our own role in that. And just because you mess up doesn't mean you don't have to do that role. He still calls you to it. 
He still believes that you can do it. The last implication is this. Your forever changed story can bring hope and encouragement to those around you. Just like Peter's story that we were just talking about, this lowest of low times for him became something that he used to give encouragement to those who were going, in, going through similar circumstances. And we need to remember that that's what our stories can do as well. It's not healthy for us to live in the past. If Peter had continued to live in the fact that he had denied Jesus, he would have, he would have been useless going forward because he would have just continued to see himself as a failure and a wreck. But he remembered where he was and he remembered that Jesus had restored him and brought him through that. And he was able to use that to touch people's lives. That's why we're sitting here. Because of Peter and his perseverance. And you all have stories just like that in your lives. Times where Jesus showed up, restored you, and helped you move on. That is no longer just your story. It's his. It's his story of restoration, and you have got to use that to help bring encouragement and hope to those who are around you. Every week as we do communion, we get to be reminded of the story that Jesus invited us to become a part of, to bring his kingdom crashing to earth, to make disciples, reminded of the portion of his story where he gave everything for us. And it was on that night when he was betrayed, and not just by Judas, by Peter, by the rest of them for abandoning him, the night he was betrayed. He took that bread, he broke it and gave thanks. He said, this is my body which will be broken for all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, first and foremost, that you invite us to be a part of your forever changed story. That your story is one that is for the, for the ages. And you have invited us to help you put this world back together. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone here today that as we walk out of these doors that we think about this time in Peter's life that seemed like it was the lowest time that he could ever see, ever experience. And then you brought him out of that. Lord, help us to remember you do the same for us. There was nothing super special about Peter. You love us just as much as you love him. You see all the potential in us just like you saw it in him. Help us to be bold and courageous as we serve you, as we get back on mission with you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.